0: Today on Blue 58, Jordan Love has gotten a lot of credit for the Packers' recent improved play, but there's more to the team's turnaround than just the quarterback. Let's explore what else is going on. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of ThePowerSweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink, and I am happy to be with you here for another episode. Our 2023 charity fundraiser is off and running You've got a chance to win some valuable prizes if you in, uh, choose to participate in this year's drive. As we've mentioned before, everything that we're raising this year goes to the Aaron Jones A&A All the Way Foundation, just partly due to excitement about what he does, but also because it was we thought we lost him for the season there a couple weeks ago. And it's just fun to give back to a player who's been pretty special on and off the field for the Packers since he arrived in 2020, 2017. How it works is just donate whatever you feel led to donate. I'm saying the minimum suggested donation is 10 bucks, but give whatever you feel like. Uh, get them in by December 31st, 2022. Take a screenshot of your donation, send it to the powersweep1959 at gmail.com, and you will be included in the drawing for one of the many prizes that are up for grabs this year. In four years now, well, three years plus this year that we've done it, we've raised more than $10,000 for various Packers-related charities. Huge round of applause for you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for your support for the Power Sweep and Blue 58 in that respect. It just means a lot to me that you are willing to do that, and I'm excited that we get to talk about Aaron Jones a little bit more this year in that sort of way. Speaking of Aaron Jones, he has been a long-running story for the Packers this year, and he and players like him have been one of the reasons, other than Jordan Love, that the Packers have turned things around. Now, obviously, Aaron Jones hasn't been a big, big part of the, the picture over the last month or so, but at times this season, he's been a key part of the Packers' offense. And I think to use him as a segue, what I'd like to talk about before we get to Jordan Love in this episode is some of the other players kind of in that category. Who has really stepped up other than Jordan Love over the past month or so that has helped the Packers get back into a position where we can talk about them having a realistic shot at, well, at least trying for a playoff berth this year? I think we need to look at one specific unit or one specific area where the Packers' defense is playing better, a few veterans on both sides of the ball, and then we will talk a little bit about Jordan Love as well. So let's start things off by talking about that one aspect of the Packers' defense that I think bears mentioning. It is the pass rush. I feel like this has been an underrated aspect of the Packers' recent performances. When the defense plays better, it's easier for the offense to play better. And one area where the defense has been playing better is in the pass rush, to the point that the Packers' pass rush numbers are starting to look pretty good on the team level this year. There's three things that we track in our pass rushing stats. We tra- we track pressure rate, we tra- talk pressure rate on true pass sets, both of which are numbers from uh, Pro Football Focus, and then we talk about production ratio, which is basically just how many sacks and tackles for loss an individual player is recording. In each of those areas, we can see real improvement for the Packers' at the team level, and things are trending upward pretty sharply of late. Starting with pressure rate, the Packers have five players this year who have rushed the passer at least 175 times and recorded a pressure rate above 10%. Those five guys are Rashawn Gary, Devontae Wyatt, Kenny Clark, Preston Smith, and Carl Brooks. Last year, the Packers only had four total players Who crossed the 10% threshold, and two of them were guys with barely any pass rushes. Justin Hollins was one of the four with 83, which is enough, but still fewer than half of the numbers that we're looking for. And Ladarius Hamilton also crossed the 10% threshold, but he had a grand total of 10 pass rushes last year. So in this group, we're seeing a big improvement from Devontae Wyatt and Preston Smith. Kenny Clark is also putting up better numbers, in terms of pass rush stuff than he was last year, forcing me, I think, to really walk back some of the maybe Kenny Clark isn't having such a good season takes that we were putting out there earlier this year, even within the past couple weeks. We'll talk about Kenny Clark more in a little bit. We're also seeing more production from JJ and Igbari on the edge. He is actually just under both of our thresholds here. He's only rushed the passer 140 times. He's produced 13 pressures, which is a rate of just over 9%. Bump it up by a couple more, and he might be in that 10% club too. The point is, in terms of just getting after the passer on any passing down, the Packers are doing a pretty good job. We could also stand to see a little bit of improvement here from Lucas Van Ness, who's clocking a 7.2% rate in this stat so far this year. We need a little bit more from the rookie over the rest of the year, but he does have some other numbers that we'll talk about in a second, at least one other number that we'll talk about in a second that maybe gives a little bit more context to how he's playing. Like I said, we also track true pass set pressure rate. I think this is a good one to look at. Pro Football Focus defines it basically as the, the real passes, so not play action passes, not screen passes, and not bootlegs. They want you just to look at the plays where a player has a real shot to get after the quarterback that isn't affected by things the offense is doing to try to just essentially trick the pass rushers or game the pass rushers so it's it's harder for them to do their job. So just picture how much how hard it is for Rashawn Gary rushing from over right tackle. If the quarterback bootlegs left, he might beat the right tackle, but he might not record a pressure just because the quarterback ran away from him before he even got around the tackle. That's not really fair to knock Rashawn Gary's pass rush stats for not being able to get to the quarterback in that situation. If anything, it's it's kind of giving him an invisible pressure anyway because they choose, chose to bootleg away from where he was. That's just one example, just kind of a hypothetical there, though stuff like that has happened. In fact, there were games in the past where Gary has actually chased people down on bootlegs, but we're getting in the weeds here now. The point is, it's a number that might give you a little bit better grasp of where, what a pass rusher can actually do on a down-in, down-out basis in quote-unquote real passing situations. In their stats on true pass set pass rushes, the Packers have three players getting after the quarterback at a 15% rate or better. Rashawn Gary is at 21%. Devontae Wyatt is up at 19%, so in the neighborhood of Rashawn Gary as well, which is pretty spectacular in and of itself. And then you've got Kenny Clark, who's at 15.03%. Last year, the Packers had just one guy. Who was able to crack that threshold? Pretty significant improvement over where they were last year. The Packers are getting more just overall productivity from their defensive rush, from their defensive front in terms of getting after the passer, and more production from these specific guys: Rashawn Gary, Wyatt, and Kenny Clark, as well as Preston Smith, who's right in the neighborhood as well, just under fifteen percent. Uh, after you know, not quite getting to that threshold last year. Then in production ratio. This is one that's maybe not as quite as analytically sound as some of the other numbers, but I have a hard time divorcing myself from it just because I think there is some value to measuring actual productivity. To go a little bit deeper on the stat, it was developed by Pat Kerwin. We talked about it in our, um, our, our book club look at his, his book, uh, Take Your Eye Off the Ball actually the sequel, 2.0. But he talks about how to get a ballpark look at how good a guy is at getting into the opposing team's backfield. You take sacks and tackles for loss, add them up, divide them by the amount of games played. Generally speaking, you want to look for guys that are at 1.0 or above in their ratio of sacks and tackles for loss per games played. It's not perfect. We know that pressures are important. We know that just you can affect the quarterback in more ways than getting a sack and tackles for loss may not be accurate in terms of the impact you're having on the on the game i understand all that however the thing is pressures are good but they're not real in the same way that sacks and tackles for loss are put it this way you can have a game where you have 5 pressures where you get after the quarterback and affect him on five plays. It would also be possible to lose because on those five plays, the quarterback still threw five touchdown passes. However, if you, on those same plays, had five sacks, he's not throwing touchdowns on those plays. There's a real, actual, tangible difference between a sack and a pressure. And I know... We've all seen the rant from former Packers outside linebackers coach Mike Smith about you know, how great it was that Z'Darrius Smith was getting all these pressures, how great it is that, that you can affect the quarterback in multiple ways, how we need to look at things beyond the box score. I understand all that. I'm very sympathetic to it. It still matters to sack the quarterback. And I would rather have a guy who has just 20 pressures on a season and all 20 of those pressures are sacks than a guy who has... 50 pressures, and none of them are sacks. And I think everybody would take that too. So I think there there is some value, and we're using hyperbole here too. Obviously, this is hyperbole. But I think you understand the point. There is actual tangible value to getting those counting stats sometimes, and it's worth taking a look at it as well. So for the first time this year, I sat down today and I updated all our production ratio stats. It's been a wild fall. I I want to do this more more regularly, but I I don't think we need to do production ratio each and every week. To this point, though, Rashawn Gary is leading the team at a production ratio of 1.32. He's the only player above 1.0, which is the cutoff line. However, overall, the Packers' pass rush has been more productive than last year. So far this season, they have eight players at a production ratio of 0.5 or higher. Last year, they only had four. This season, they also have five players at 0.6 or higher. The broad takeaway here is that the Packers' defensive front is making plays in the backfield. I said we were going to mention one more stat about Lucas Van Ness. If you're looking for an area in which you can be encouraged about Van Ness's performance so far this year, it is production ratio. He's having a mildly productive season there, at least. He's got a production ratio of .54 on the season so far. One sack and one tackle for loss in 11 games. For comparison's sake, Rashawn Gary, he of the great pressure numbers as a rookie, only had a production ratio of 0.32. Even if Rashawn Gary was affecting the passer, Lucas Van Ness has had a more concrete impact on the game than Rashawn Gary did as a rookie, at least in this one particular aspect. It's not perfect, but no stat is, and I think if we trot out a bunch of pretty good stats, it's, it's... still a viable approach as as searching for that one perfect silver bullet stat that's going to help us, you know, encapsulate everything all at once. Kind of related to this, a, a big reason the Packers pass rush is better is because some of their veteran players have been playing better. And I think this is something I want to, a thread that I want to pull on a little bit more because the headlines for the Packers this year have centered largely around their young players. And in one respect, there there is some validity to that because this team is so young that the young players were always going to be the reason they, they sunk or swam. That is a weird tense to have to say that expression in. In any case, it was going to be the young players that defined the Packers season. However, they still needed some help from the veterans, and I think the reason the Packers struggled early in the season is because there were some inconsistent performances from some of their, their more veteran players. And there are a few on the roster. And we've talked about them here. And they've, they've started to play better as the season has gone on. So let's talk about a few of them. I've got two I want to mention on, on defense and then three, technically four, I want to talk about on offense. The first guy I want to talk about on defense is Kenny Clark. We mentioned him maybe having a little bit of a down year maybe that's not so much accurate as the the broader point as when we brought him up earlier the season that since he signed his big mega deal extension he hasn't necessarily been one of the top 2 or 3 defensive tackles in the league despite being paid like one however over the past 3 or 4 weeks he's been playing pretty well 17 pressures for Kenny over the last 3 weeks we 3 weeks 8 of them Came against the Lions. They've also been, according to Pro Football Focus, his best three gated graded games of the year. He's also been playing a lot of snaps in the past three weeks. He's played 49 and 50, 49, 50 and 64 snaps in order. That works out to 75, 77, and 76 percent of the defensive snaps in those games. Not quite his season high, but the the most he's played over an extended stretch, in in really any given three or four game stretch of the season. Kenny has been playing better of late and it is really helping the Packers defense and it helps the other guys rushing the passer when you've got pressure coming from up the middle, because that takes away a big place where the quarterback would normally like to run. The other guy in a similar position is Preston Smith, who I think is old enough now that we can call him a wily veteran. I wouldn't say for sure, but he's he's right on the borderline of that territory He, too, has been playing well over the past three weeks, 12 pressures in that span, and after a slow start, he's now at the point where all of his pass rushing numbers are either up or comparable to where they were in some of his better seasons. Pressure rate is up from 10.7% last year to 10.5% this year. Not a huge jump, but still a jump. His pressure rate on true pass sets is up from 12.4% in 2022 to 14.29% in 2023. It's it's small improvements when you're talking about you know half a percent or two percent or so, but still a timely pressure or two or three, which is really all we're talking about on these plays, matters over the course of the season. And getting five, seven, ten more pressures from a guy over the course of the season, well, may not be quite as good as a sack, but still It counts for something, and it does help the overall defensive effort if you are getting wave after wave of guys consistently getting after the passer. Switching over to offense, Elton Jenkins also, I think, on a bit of a, well, maybe not a tear recently, but has improved a lot over the back half of the season here. Elton, if you remember, only played in three of the Packers' first five games, was injured a couple weeks in there. In that stretch, where he only played three games, his pass-blocking grade, according to Pro Football Focus, was never higher than 68.4. But after the Packers' Week 6 bye, his pass-blocking grade has never been under a 71.4, and the last five weeks, it's never been under a 76.4. He's been at a very good to elite level for basically a month now, which I think is what we're expecting from Elton Jenkins Basically, at this point, he has to be the best Packers offensive lineman, and he's right there, I think, at this point. Remember, if you will, his ACL injury was November 21st, 2021, so he's almost exactly two years removed, just past two years removed, in fact, from that injury. It makes sense that we're starting to see him really get back to his full form at this point. The next two guys I wanted to talk about kind of come together in that they're the really the only guys you could reasonably call veterans in the Packers receiving group this season. That's Christian Watson and Romeo Dobbs. We created kind of an unintentional running bit on this very podcast in talking about their poor combined output at points this year. That has nosed up significantly over the past month or so. Over these past four games, they've combined for 38 targets, 24 catches, 332 yards, and four touchdowns. You know, if you've followed this podcast for long enough, I'd love to refer to my trailing averages. Looking at their four-game trailing average, they're at their third highest four-game stretch of the season in terms of combined catches, their second highest four-game stretch in terms of combined yards or average combined yards, and their highest yards per target on average over any four-game stretch of the season. Dobbs and Watson are finding their feet after a rough start to the season. I was particularly encouraged by Christian Watson's performance in the last game, as we talked about on last week's black Friday show. I think he's, he, I don't, I, I think he's playing better. I don't want to say he's turned a corner and that this is going to be how it is from now on, but he played significantly better against the lions. He finished out strong the week prior against the chargers. He still has all the tools in the world. If Dobbs, can continue to be like the consistent number three option that I think he really should be on a healthy Packers offense, and Watson can continue to provide threats to the defense in ways that only he can on the Packers offense, I think you're getting all you can really ask for from those two. And that's that might be really all that they need if Jaden Reed's going to continue on the tear that he's been on and Dontavian Wick's can be whatever he's becoming, and then you've got Luke Musgrave back in there at some point once his kidney heals. Geez, that is still a very painful thing to say. Things are looking up for the Packers' offense because guys that should be playing better have been playing better. Finally, let's talk about A.J. Dillon. We talked about him playing better on a recent episode, but I didn't feel like it really had any numbers that could explain the ways in which he was playing better. Here are a couple for you. He has eight explosive plays on the season. Five of those eight have been over the last four games or so. Even if he's not putting up big productivity numbers overall, he's producing chunk plays in a way that we really haven't seen from him before. He's also had three plays of 20 or more yards over the past three weeks. And on the Packers roster, only Dontavian Wicks has more in that same span. He has four to Dylan's three. Jaden Reed also has three in that same span as well. So some of the veterans on the Packers are playing a little bit better. And what about Jordan Love? The ongoing question about Love is where he stands in terms of what the Packers want to do with him in the future. The big question I think where a lot of us are assuming is whether or not he'll play well enough this year that the Packers feel like they can extend him maybe in the offseason or some point during next season. I've come off that a little bit. I'm not as bound and determined for them to to have to make a decision on Jordan Love. Look at it this way. If, if the Packers go into next season and Jordan Love hasn't been signed to an extension, they can do it at any point during the season. They can wait until after the season to use the franchise tag, and he's still under team control, and they can do another deal or negotiate another deal at that point. Or they can just keep hitting him with the franchise tag for as long as it's financially viable to do so. The Packers cap situation is really going to open up in 2025 who knows what the cap looks like league wide at that point you can just you have him under team control if he turns into a real serious franchise guy and you're probably going to be able to do it fairly affordably for as long as you really need to make that decision i really wouldn't want to rush into a situation where they end up giving him a contract like the giants gave daniel jones I'm also going to try to make it a point to not get too hung up on whatever number the packers end up giving him. Daniel Jones is the big sticker shock one just because it was what four years forty hundred and sixty million dollars. It works out to forty million dollars a year or so on average. I know the the calculations get a little bit fuzzy at times, but it's at at a certain point it's just it's not a question of how much he's going to get paid. It's just a question of whether or not you think he's a starting caliber quarterback that you want to build around. Because if you have one of those, you're just going to pay whatever it is that you want to pay to keep him, that you have to pay to keep him, because it's the rarest commodity in football. It's the reason that even if, you know, I didn't like the pick at the time, even if I think that the jury should still be out on it for a while, because I think the bar is higher for success in this situation than people realize. That's an entirely different discussion. But, but the The talking point in favor of, of drafting Jordan Love is that if you get it right, it's the most important decision team-building-wise that you can ever make. Getting your quarterback right, getting it figured out, is what makes your entire team go. So if the Packers decide that Jordan Love is a franchise quarterback, even though—what does that really mean? If he's a quarterback they think they can build around on a year-to-year basis that they want to keep around— long term, you're just going to pay whatever it is that you need to pay to keep him. Because again, if you've got that figured out, it doesn't it doesn't really matter what the cost is because you're going to pay it because you've answered the important question. Anyway, that's a long aside to talk about, to set up the the question here that we're trying to get answered here in 2023 and into 2024 as well. How good does, do we need to see Jordan Love be to start feeling good about him in that long-term kind of capacity. I don't know what the exact answer is. I can tell you from the numbers that I track that we are getting really, really close to having an answer in the affirmative. If you're a long-time listener, you'll know my favorite number for quarterbacks is adjusted net yards per attempt. If you're not a long-time listener, my favorite number for looking at quarterbacks is adjusted net yards per attempt. Why? I know silver bullet stats are not really a thing, I know that there are a whole bunch of different ways to look at quarterbacks. You can look at pro football focus grades. You can look at EPA. You can look at EPA plus CPOE. You can look at any number of other things. Average depth of target, uh, tight window completions, big plays. Uh, You can look at quarterback rating if you are an ESPN fan. You can look at passer rating if you're pedantic and like to use the correct terms for things. What Whatever you want to look at, there's a bunch of different stats. I think adjusted net yards per attempt is the best because it incorporates a lot of different things. It incorporates accuracy. It incorporates um, rewarding touchdowns. It incorporates penalizing interceptions. And it incorporates penalizing quarterbacks for taking sacks because a lot of times sacks are a quarterback stat. Interceptions are frequently a quarterback stat, though there are exceptions. Sacks in the same way are usually a quarterback stat, though there are exceptions. Just lumping them both under blame for the quarterback, I think, balances out some of the other things that, you know, maybe quarterbacks are blamed for that aren't necessarily their fault or things that quarterbacks get credit for that also aren't necessarily, you know, things they should be getting credit for, blah, blah, blah. In any way, in any case, you combine all those into one number and you get adjusted net yards per attempt. This number is so important that I've devoted an entire page on thepowersweep.com to tracking it, we did it for Aaron Rodgers. We're doing it for Jordan Love. So, what do the na- numbers say about Jordan Love? Breaking things down into trailing averages on four-game chunks, we are we're looking at some good trends for for Love. I track things by four, eight, and sixteen-game trends, as well as individual um, individual numbers or like individual game scores. Individual, on on the individual game level. Jordan Love's numbers have been broadly trending upward over the past five, six weeks or so. He has gotten better. He's put up better productivity numbers over the past five to six weeks or so. His trend line numbers are also going up. We are seeing significant improvements in his four-game trend numbers, his eight-game trend numbers, and his 16-game trend numbers. As of right now, his adjusted net yards per attempt uh, on a 16-game trend. So the last 16 games in which he has appeared, it's not just starts, it's all the games in which he's appeared. Though pretty soon we're going to, pretty soon into 20, well, no, pr- by the end of the season, we'll be at, at 16 games worth of starts um, in the Love starting era. But that number is 6.07 uh, adjusted net yards per attempt. That's not a great figure, but it's it's pretty solid. However, The important thing for context there is that we are getting close to where Aaron Rodgers was at the same point in his early 16-game trends. We just have seen Jordan Love's 21st game as an NFL player, the 21st game in which he has appeared, so let's put it that way. At the 21-game point, his 16-game trend number is just over 6 yards. For Aaron Rodgers, it was 6.47 yards. So they're a difference of just 0.4 yards between the two of them at the same point in their career. Things really took off for Aaron Rodgers around the Game 30 mark. And from Game 30 to 40, we really saw a pronounced increase in some of his long-term trend numbers in this stat. By game 40 or so, the 40th game of his career, by the way, was the first week of the twenty twenty or 2010 NFL season. By game 40 or so, he was the guy that basically he was going to be for most of the rest of his career. By that point, his adjusted net yards per attempt for a 16-game window was above 7 yards on average, and he was never below that number again until the 2015 season, late in the 2015 season, a year during which things really went badly for Rodgers and the Packers. Basically, except for a 3-game stretch in the middle of the 2010 season, he was the guy that he was going to be for the rest of his career by the middle of his middle to late portion of his second season as a starter. So, if love is kind of on the cusp of where Rodgers was at around that point, I think that bodes pretty well for his long-term tenure. We're also seeing in these same numbers some things that indicate that Jordan Love can be among the more productive players in the NFL. His adjusted net yards per attempt four-game average right now is 7.69 yards. If you extrapolated that over a whole season, if he had been playing at that level for the entire season, he would currently rank third in the league among all passers uh, in terms of adjusted net yards per attempt. A lot of that can be skewed by one really, really good game. I understand that. But for context, he's had three games of his last four that have been at that figure or higher. The only blip in there is the Steelers game that was dragged down by two interceptions. Interceptions that, you know, you can talk about who's blame or who takes the blame there, whose blame it really is, but they go on his stat sheet so that gets driven down there. But generally speaking, again, he's been trending upward And where he is right now compares really favorably with where some of the best passers in the league have been on a season-long basis. And they seem to be pointing in a direction that would suggest that he's, if nothing else, on the right path. A lot of things can change. The bar for success here is still really, really high. Just to put a little context to what I'm saying there, when I uh, when I mean the bar is really high, when you take a quarterback in the first round, you're, you're saying that we think this is a guy that we can build around long-term. If you want to build around a guy long-term, it, it's a guy that you think you can win a Super Bowl with. And the line that I've always used for whether or not you can win a Super Bowl is it has to be a guy who's capable of playing at an NFL MVP level, because that's what we've seen year after year after year, at least in the playoffs It's guys that are putting up numbers that are comparable to NFL MVP type quarterback seasons. If you don't think a guy can play at that level, you shouldn't be taking him in the first round. So when I say the bar for success is high, that's what I mean. If Jordan Love can't play at like an MVP of the NFL type level, the pick is a miss. You shouldn't be trying to build around a guy who can't get to at least that level. The. Even, even the game manager-type quarterbacks, to use a term that I don't really like because it's so often just a pejorative, are putting up elite numbers. And we can say that because I don't think anybody thinks Brock Purdy is Patrick Mahomes, but Brock Purdy is currently ahead of Patrick Mahomes in this stat that we're looking at, adjusted net yards per attempt. League MVP or even your game manager-type guys have to put up those kinds of numbers for you to have a real shot at the Super Bowl. It That is the level at which Jordan Love needs to be playing if the Packers want to ever consider him being a success as a draft pick. That may seem harsh. I don't think that's unfair. And the big knock on Aaron Rodgers, you know, when he didn't get back to a Super Bowl, is that he came up short in the playoffs. And a lot of times it was because, well, maybe not a lot of times, at times it was because he didn't play at an NFL MVP level in the playoffs. Look at the 2021 season, the way that ended. That's a a pretty good example, too. Even his last season in Green Bay, 2022, a big reason they didn't make the playoffs that year is because Rodgers wasn't even playing like at a Pro Bowl caliber level. Well, it shows you where you need to be to be a franchise quarterback in the NFL and where the Packers need Jordan Love to be if they want to feel confident about his future in Green Bay. Fortunately, it seems like he's headed that way Unfortunately, and I say that kind of mildly, we're still a ways from finding out for sure. In any case, that's all I've got for you in this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you tuning in. I would appreciate it even more if you would take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. It's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.